Welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. This is episode 105. Today we are going to talk about emperors. We do not talk about emperors very much on this podcast. At least, not in proportion to the amount of evidence that we have for their activities. As historians, we talk about emperors a lot. So much that many are tired of hearing talk of emperors. Surely everyone else deserves attention, too. And that is perfectly true. However, emperors did have an outsized importance. However, I would argue that in the field traditionally known as Byzantine studies, we have barely begun to scratch the surface of understanding the imperial position. I say this for a number of reasons. For one thing, we don't actually have a book that lays out what emperors did and how they were embedded in all the different mechanisms of political administration, the civilian administration, religion, and so forth in the life of the Eastern Roman Empire. We just don't have that foundational book or even series of books. The late 20th century was so obsessed and preoccupied with the theology of the imperial position and, quote, the imperial idea and emperor and god and all of that, that we neglected to carry out foundational research on how the institutions and the emperor actually interfaced. We don't really know how the, quote, court functioned, like on a day-to-day basis, like what were its dynamics? We are only now beginning to think about how emperors made decisions, given the constraints, uh, material, political, under which they operated. For some thoughts on this, look at episode 64 with guest Michael Grunbart. I'm also not entirely convinced that we should be translating Vasilevs as emperor. Emperor is a modern term. It has certain modern connotations. And I'm not sure that that word, or Vasilevs in conjunction with other words, necessarily meant, quote, emperor. We haven't even had that discussion. We just carry on using conventional terminology. In some context, it might have approximated what we mean by emperor, but we haven't even bothered to define that yet. Also, when it comes to the practicalities of the position, much of our concern focuses around imperial power and limitations on power. Like, the emperor wants to get people to do this, and how far can he push until he begins to receive pushback? But... Imperial power operated in various indirect and more subtle and softer ways, too. Just the other day, I was reading an imperial oration from the late 11th century. This is by Theophilactos, who's writing it for uh, one of the uh, princes of the Ducas family. And he has this to say about emperors. He says, What is promoted by the emperor tends to grow. If the emperor is a lover of rhetoric, then... Good Lord, what a deluge of wise men. The palace will echo with recitations. And if he is known to apply himself to philosophy and to wrestle with mathematics, then men filled with Plato will attend the palace gates, and Archimedes, Euclid, and Hypsicles will not be unknown to those guarding the doors. But if he is thought to love horses, then the palace will be crowded with Nicaean and Italian steeds. I quote from the Translation by Marion Cruz, friend of the podcast, who is preparing it for publication. And I quote this passage to show that emperors merely expressing certain proclivities or, you know, personal tastes will tend to find imitators, and this will incentivize certain behaviors or cultural practices. In fact, an argument can be made that a great deal of medieval religious history came down to the preferences expressed by rulers— Elites will tend to gravitate toward those preferences. People will follow those elites, and pretty soon you have a Christian polity or one that's inflected in a particular denominational direction and so forth. Kings exert this kind of ripple effect throughout their society, even in matters of religion. The reverse is true, too. In other words, subjects have expectations of their rulers, and those expectations then shift and influence what those rulers do. There's quite an interesting dialectical process here that governs both the exercise of power and the shaping and history of cultural change. 
Emperors and their subjects were always looking at each other and deciding whether to follow along or push back. These dynamics lie at the heart of an excellent new survey of the imperial position during its first six centuries. The book is written by my guest today, Oliver Hexter, who is a professor at the Radboud University, Nijmegen. And the book is called Caesar Rules, the Emperor in the Changing Roman World from 50 BC to 565 AD, that is the death of Justinian. So it treats the entire, what I would call the early period as one unit, like from Augustus to Justinian, which is an interesting periodization. We talk about that a little bit in the discussion. This book is a very clear and accessible introduction to the roles that emperors were expected to play, military, religious, civic, legal, about how the environments around the emperor, whether at the, in Rome or at the court or traveling or in Constantinople, shaped themselves to adapt to each emperor's way of performing those roles, and how emperors interacted with their subjects in all of those different capacities. And I hope that one day we can have a book or books like this uh, for later East Roman emperors. Probably not from Oliver himself, who says he's moving back to the period of the late Republic. Um, so he's mostly an ancient historian who's looking late when he turns to Justinian. Uh, but perhaps some of you can pick it up from there and take it later. Anyway, this was a tremendously fun conversation to have. I hope you enjoy it too. Thanks again to Medievalists.net for reposting these episodes. Uh, here is my conversation with Oliver. Oliver, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be there. I have been reading you for years, obviously, and I've been waiting for you to publish something that cut into territory that I could reasonably claim was Byzantine. So here we are. Um, so Finally. You wrote a book on the Roman emperor, or for the my audience, I should clarify, the early Roman emperors. <laughs> In fact, I'm going to use this book as a as a kind of standard for periodization, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that later, because I think that you're right. This period is a kind of unit. So you examine the emperors like from the first century BC or AD or whatever, when for emperors first appear down to the sixth century. And let's start with some very big questions here, because I think everybody. So to paraphrase a probably the single best known uh, phrase to come from a Supreme Court decision in the U.S. You know an emperor when you see one, but you can't define it exactly. And this is really odd thing about Roman emperors that from a distance, they're easier to see than when you get up close and like you lose resolution the closer you get to them because it's harder to see exactly what their position and their title is. They get blurrier the closer you look at them. And you talk about this in the book, not in those terms. I'm just kind of putting it in my language. So what makes Roman emperors so elusive? You you devote a whole section of the book to the problems of trying to figure out what exactly an emperor was. So what are they? So I don't know. I've written a book and I think the conclusion is the emperor doesn't exist and I still don't know what they are. Um, so I'd have to write another. But but at sort of the basic level, I think we always need to remember that Roman emperorship arises from a very weird political cultural context, which is effectively years of civil war at the end of what we call the Roman Republic, then Caesar coming to power, creating a dictatorship and being assassinated. And then Augustus, Octavian, young Caesar, whoever he is or however we want to call him taking up power and spending a lot of effort and time in showing that though he's in power, he is not in the same sort of sole power dictatorship kingship that Caesar was in order not to get assassinated. So the whole basis of the first person whom we call Roman emperor is that he's not a Roman emperor. Right. And that, that 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 must be the reason why it remains blurry, the whole notion of emperorship, kingship, actually, I'd rather say, is problematic for Romans. So um, if, if I were to be 
sophist about it and say your question is about emperor in the Roman world. Emperor is our term. Mm-hmm. I I wouldn't know. So I've, as you say, I've spent time on this, but I still wouldn't know what exactly the word in the Roman world would be that we systematically translate as emperor. Agree. So that's the problem. Absolutely. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And it gets even more problematic the later you go, like in quote Byzantine times. There's just no word that translates for that. And and you you go through all of the terms that that appear in the sources and the inscriptions and the official quote titulature. I oh, will get back to that, won't we? <laughs> well, you tell us about. It. So, what, is there an no. imperial title? So, 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 no. I think th- th- there is one name slash title that they all hold, and that's Augustus. So if you look systematically over time, and one of the things I've tried to do in the book is look systematically over time in how people call the person we call the emperor in different types of sources and different genres. And the one that's always there is Augustus. So Augustus is on coins, Augustus is an inscription. If it's an emperor, I don't know, but they are all Augustus. I think everyone knew what the Augustus was right. and you can have a plural of augustine you can have the augusta so that that resonates clearly and then you have a whole lot of other appellations to this figure and they are heavily contextualized so it depends very much on who is talking to this figure what they call him and i'm going to take you up instantly on something that you said because it's so common people talk about official titulature yes uh, i don't know what that is in the roman world so again, I, I wouldn't know why certain types of sources are official and others aren't official, because again, it is it is us trying to look for something which I think wasn't there, if you if you see what I'm getting at. Yes. I've encountered this problem in other contexts too. Like for example, when scholars discuss the quote official language of the Roman Empire. And I'm there are periods when I'm just not sure that such a thing existed. But you're exactly right. So like official document or documents issued by the court or inscriptions that seem in some way to have been at least approved by the court have these jumble of names and titles and we treat those as official, right? Whereas in a literary source that's talking about, you know, Vasilev's whatever, we treat that as a literary non-official, right? And it gets it gets interesting. So if we have a literary text of someone effectively speaking to the emperor and addressing him as Caesar, right? Well, that clearly must be an appellation that at least the emperor accepts as his title, because otherwise it'd be very risky to call him by that name. So yeah. why is that non-official if it's used in a court context, even if literary? Yes. Um, when when we get Caracalla being called Caracalla by his soldiers, that's a nickname and unofficial, but it's obviously the name he himself wanted to be called by. So yes. official yeah. seems to imply a certain hierarchical status or some sort of notarization, neither of which I think work in the way the figure of the emperor works in the Roman world. And that gets back to your blurriness. Right. The emperor is all of the above. So he is both the Augustus and the Imperator and the Basileus and Caesar and Caracalla, um, depending on context and depending on sources. So I, yeah. the official part seems to suggest a, a hierarchy of correctness, which doesn't really work. Yes, and we're also not sure about the distinctions between names and titles. It's entirely possible, right, that Imperator Augustus was a name, right? Like like the person we sometimes call Octavian, that that was his name after being Gaius Julius Caesar, after being Octavianus. And there's there's the brilliant article still by Ronald Syme, which shows it is his name. But but then the fact that it's his name doesn't mean it isn't a title. Yes. Right. So and, and, and then even if it was his name and not a title, were people outside of his direct circle aware that it was his name and not his title? So we get into all sorts of problems, which I think we frankly can't solve. They're fun to think with, though. 
They are. And I think that was part of the point. Like, I think the quote emperors, like they didn't want to be pinned down in any of these ways. And they wanted to have this, this aura of blurriness about who they are and what they were in part, as your book argues in many contexts to present themselves differently to different constituencies and play different roles. Yeah, I, th I think I, I, I sort of half agree with you. Yeah, in that you're, 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 you're obviously right, that this is an effect and something that was appreciated. I am not entirely sure that it is the choice of the emperors or of any individual emperor to do this. And if it wasn't, at least to a large extent, also a result of all the people in the empire not quite knowing what to do with this mm. figure at the heart of power and them trying to come with whatever they thought was either a useful term or something that would work for them so it's yeah, right, yeah we get right. we, we may get to the active or passiveness of the emperor and his agency at some stage but i think in getting titles and names it's not always the emperor deciding what he was doing but quite often also people surrounding him are further away trying to make sense of the situation and throwing a name or a title that they knew at this new figure right right yeah in functional terms, like if we look at it as sort of hard-nosed historians, he's the guy with the 30 legions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you've got 30 legions, it kind of matters a bit less what people call you. Anyway. Yeah, well, it doesn't. It, it, um, because, of course, that's the Caesar approach, and it got him killed. So yeah. even the guy with... 30 legions very much doesn't want to continuously have to stare behind his back for the noise that are perpetually right. out for him. So it, you're absolutely right. And, and I don't know if I've said it in the book, but I said it in teaching regularly. Roman emperorship is a military dictatorship. Full stop. I think we we, we don't have to beat about a bush. Roman right, emperors right, right. were military dictators. And it starts with Octavian starting his letters to the Senate with me and my soldiers are well. Just imagine American presidents uh, in certain circumstances where, say, a Senate wasn't agreeing with them, sending a letter saying, me and all the soldiers who swore an oath of allegiance to me personally are fine. How are you going to react? <laughs> that is the basis of it. Yes. Having said that, it still mattered that other people wanted to work with you Yes. If you want to function over a long period of time in any coherent way. Yeah. When push comes to shove, there's some men with pointed sticks around. But I think the whole project is to try to avoid pushing coming to shoving. Absolutely. Yeah. And so all of this apparatus of, of titles and, and, and communication back and forth, I think, was meant to prevent that. I... You're exactly right when you call it a military dictatorship. And I think even without resorting to something, you know, quite so you know, blunt, I, I think most of our audience can understand that. If you think, for example, about like the the, the, the dominant framework of our lives in Western societies, which is private property, we sort of take it for granted and we have all these euphemisms built around it. But ultimately, private property is maintained because... When push comes to shove, there's some men with sticks who show up to defend it. And we don't like to think of it that way. Like my right to be in this house that I, quote, bought with, quote, money ultimately comes down to whether some violent men are willing to defend my right to it. And any, anyway, yeah, so em the emperorship is backed up by that. Um, and unfortunately, it all too often comes to sho shoving. But <laughs> okay. Actually, it doesn't come to shoving that often. I find if you look, so 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 what I've tried to do, and, and I think we'll get back to that, is look at long stretches of time and yes. what you call the early emperorship. Um, the early emperorship is when it starts to arise, and then we can start to discuss when it arises as emperorship, and then when it develops. But I'm I'm looking at sort of six hundred years of emperorship. Right. Right. Okay. Um, now there's often situations in which individual emperors get dethroned and there are occasional periods of civil war that would be i think your when push comes to shove situation right but on the whole it's actually there's relatively little military 
direct military intervention, I think, in successions, if you look at it over the long stretch. And there is rarely a situation in which the whole notion of emperor comes under debate. So, so right. yeah, that's so, yeah. So, 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 so you're you're obviously right, it's underlying everything, but it's so effective in how it underlies everything that it's reasonably rarely tested. If if one looks at sort of larger trajectories. You're exactly right. I, I was I actually wasn't thinking about the succession or civil wars when I made that comment. Um, I've been reading about the church councils as I we were talking oh, yeah, about yeah, that yeah, earlier. Yeah. And because I'm teaching a course on the church councils, and it's so common when emperors are not getting their way with certain groups and certain constituencies, there seem always to be some soldiers around who can settle the matter. <laughs> There's a lot of beating that takes place. <laughs> anyway, and that's when like the fictions of the emperor just being a kind of distant manager of these disputes kind of breaks down, at least in the eyes of people who thought that the emperor was getting too involved. Yeah. And and you're, you're right. And that is not something that is limited to what I call the late and you call the sort of early or normal period, sort of when we get to early Byzantine or whatever, because we, we have this obviously, with De La Torres under Nero, you've got the, with the Maestatis trials, so the trials against people who offended the emperors. There's mm. this underlying current that you, if you get him up the wrong way, he may well result and you get dead. That is that is something that people are very aware of. You're, you're, you're right. And in that sense, this military basis is, is perpetually there. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the the majority of subjects of the em- empire, because you mentioned earlier that all of these people are trying to figure out in their own way how to address and how to negotiate with this power that is in some ways elusive. Um, so were emperors perceived by the like the majority of people in the empire as just unimaginably distant figures of not much relevance for their lives? Or were they kind of ever present in a way that people were always thinking about emperors and, you know, knew who they are and and so forth? I mean, I imagine it's a combination of the two in various ways, but it's, it's kind of worth discussing. Like, how do we situate uh, the emperor in this population of what, like 50 or 60 million people? Yeah, so you, you're absolutely right. It's both. It, 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 it must be both. Um, so the people who would physically see the real as it were, the the person of the emperor mm. is going to be a relatively small group. That's going to be elite people in Rome. And even when the emperor travels, and the Roman emperor travels actually quite a lot, they will still manifest to small sections if one talks about the empire at large. So for the vast majority of these 50, 60, whatever, many million people, they would see the physical emperor rarely, on the other hand, the emperor did travel a lot. He did travel past the legions. He did make sure he would go to different cities. So there would be this trickle-down effect. I'm quite sure that quite a lot of people would know someone who had met the emperor. Hmm. So in that sense, that, that I think that's something we tend to underestimate, that sort of the possibility of meeting the emperor was at least potentially larger than the realistic chance of seeing him. So people would... He, he is approachable, certainly in Rome, but also elsewhere. This is the whole notion that you can approach the emperor, certainly up to the sixth century. So it gets slightly different when we get to the later Byzantine period, I think. But certainly for the whole period I'm talking about, the idea that you could meet the emperor is there. So that's one part of it. You wouldn't, but you could. Yeah. Um, you would always see the emperor. This is the other thing. You would perpetually be encountering the emperor because almost every single freaking coins would show the emperor and if not this emperor certainly an emperor yeah uh, the amount of statuary with the emperor oh, on yeah. it was amazing it was throughout every single city and not just the cities but the small suburbs as well the small villages as well so you'd have representations and and i imagine though we don't know that that we'd have enormous numbers of small tin cups, miniature emperors with moving heads and all sort of things that you... So so the emperor was was there like any sort of dictator yeah. in a system where you know that representation is important. So, so they would see the emperor, certainly an emperor, throughout. 
whether they would see him individually is, is different. And that that tension, that tension is something that, that people people play with in the sense that my my favorite quote, I think I, I use it, is the, the Synesius one, famous yes. the fourth, fifth century Synesius from, from Libya, who mentions that in this small village in, in Ptolemais, there are people who still think that Agamemnon, the son of Atreus, is king and that he is now the Roman emperor, right? It's well, it's a literary topos, he's playing with it, but yeah. they knew there was a Roman emperor, they wouldn't know who he was, but they were still aware there was a figure and they placed him in their own mythology. And it's it's probably not true, but it's a fun quote and it does tell you the sort of tensions that you, you were, I think, aiming at. Yes, so I have a beef with that letter or the way oh. it's used. Oh, yes. It's 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 very it's a famous statement um, because he's kind of making fun of these people. The, so yeah. you you have to read the entire letter, and I I encourage the audience to go read that letter. And in fact, read as many of Synesius's letters as you can they're because they're hilarious. And that letter is one of a series of letters that is a I think it's just a basically a parody. It, it's a it's a it's a satire, and he's written a number of these letters. And if you read the whole thing, and it's a journey into the interior of Africa where he finds this remote village, and anyway, um, it, it's very, very funny. And I don't think that it should be taken as a sociological commentary on provincials' awareness of anything. Yeah, and I, I, I think you can. I, I, I really think you can. You're obviously right. As I said, you can't take it literal. Yeah. Uh, and it is, it is all about echoing Georgica and all that sort of things. But on the on the other hand, the fact that he's making that statement, he's making that joke. You you don't make jokes that are completely uh, out there. As in, a joke is only a joke if you could imagine that there is someone who could realistically think something along those lines. And they may not think Agamemnon, but they are right. so stupid, they are yes. so out there that they still think that these mythological figures arise. So I think that the basic underlying that there was the awareness that there was a problem between this completely visible figure who manifests himself perpetually and who influences everything and people in large stretches of the Roman emperor who had no idea who he was is something that Synesius rightly, otherwise the joke wouldn't be funny. So, so okay. I think I, I, th I think because it's a joke, you can use it. So this is like when uh, uh, late night TV shows in the US, they send out like reporters on the streets of New York or LA and ask people like who the vice president is or who the president yeah. is. And they have like, no idea. Yeah. Or, or they hold up a map and say, can you find the United States on the it's, map? Exactly. It's, no I, idea. I think, yeah, it, it, it's that. So, 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 and it's only funny because we all know someone who might fall into that trap. And I think right. that... Otherwise, Synesius wouldn't work. So I, I you're okay, right. Okay. I think you should use it. I think you should use One should use jokes all the time uh, for all sorts of reasons. I love Synesius. He's wonderful. Um, <laughs> okay. So what did all of this population expect emperors to do? What were so, the expectations? Yeah, that that's a very big and tricky question, isn't it? Um and I'm, I'm I'm going to try to not not do this typical historical thing and say, oh, it's all very complex and it depends on context and it depends on groups. So, of course, it does depend on context and it does yeah. depend on groups. But I, uh, if one looks again over large stretches, people expected the emperor to be militarily successful. So we are talking about a military dictatorship and military yeah. dictatorship guarantees peace. Your story about your private property works because there are people in the state who will right. uphold the status quo. So I think most people accepted the emperor because they expected him to make sure everything was safe and sound and the Roman Empire beat up everyone else rather than the other way around. So that was a, a major role that he played. Link can, I, can I interject yeah. about the military thing? So yeah. there are two things. One is keep us safe from barbarians. And the other is make us proud by beating barbarians even if like is there an is there an element of um you know maintaining the pride of roman arms in a kind of propagandistic way beyond um kind of uh sort of rational self-interested concerns for security 
So here, here we get, I think, to differentiation between audiences. So what I try yeah, to do is yeah. give the what everyone would. Oh, feel. I see. Okay. So, so, and I think what everyone would feel is the making sure you're safe and you're, you're and as you know, the whole notion of pax in Latin isn't our piece. It's uh, pax is making sure that you win. Mm. Right. Pax mm. isn't peaceful in the, the the sort of white dove United Nations sort of peace. Pax is making sure that no one beats you up. Then you have peace. The Pax Romana means that internally you have peace. So to, right, you're, right, you're right. absolutely right that you also have this identity notion and supremacy. But I think that depends. That that becomes more group dependent. That is certainly yeah. the case for soldiers, certain groups in Rome. I, I, I think that if one were to go to the sort of people that Synesius were, was joking about for them, just making sure that you have peace and the emperor right. guarantees it by making sure there are no soldiers or bandits around. I think that's, Agreed. that's yeah. one role that everyone would assume him to have. And if he failed in that role, he'd be in deep trouble as an emperor. Okay. So I think that's, I'm trying to answer your question. Yeah, yeah, as yeah. To what did people expect to do yeah. by saying, what were the things that if he didn't do him did do it or didn't do it wrongly would bring him into problems? And then being militarily successful would be absolutely the one thing that everyone would expect him to do. Being religiously uh, relevant as well, in the sense that obviously we are talking about what I call sort of all religious fundamentalists in that religion underlies everything in the ancient world. So the emperor needed to make sure that the gods would maintain exactly the same sort of peace and status quo and propriety that you could do through mm -hmm. soldierly. So, so that's the other thing. And the, the, the third role, as I describe, and which you see throughout, is, can we call it administration, being a civic ruler, making sure that the jurisprudence went properly, making sure that if there was a disaster, money was sent and things were resolved. So it's, I think on the whole, if you bring it together, the, the emperor was supposed to be the figure who guaranteed that everything ran smoothly. They expected the emperor to do that. Mm -hmm. And you do that through the different three roles, I would say. Does that make sense? It, yes, it does. I mean, I mean, your book does a wonderful job of tracing these themes and, and how they evolve over time. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but the conclusion is... I mean, for those who might be looking at coming at the Roman emperor from other fields or from a distance, um, this is an active role. In other words, you you actually expect the emperor to do things. It's not a purely ceremonial position, for example. And these are very important areas of, say, it's a military defense or whatever, and uh, maintaining a the proper religious balance with the gods um, and also... Um, administration, which can be from day to day to governing a province in a big, that, that's a lot of responsibilities. Um, and they're, they're like the more, more important ones. And there's also the sort of whole culture of petitions, which is very important in the Roman world. And I don't know if it gets more important later on, but it's definitely very important by the time you get to Diocletian's era and beyond, where provincials of all sorts are just asking the emperor for all kinds of things from tax breaks to clarify legal disputes to hold officials accountable to like incredible um yeah those petitions might actually be a kind of <clears throat> database of what people expected the emperor to do well well to an extent because of course the the petitions are sent by a subgroup of the emperor right that's that's from certain towns or certain elites on the whole, I would still say the petitions on the whole show elite interest and petitions are essential. And, and, and well, okay, so we, we talked about active or passive to a sense. And mm -hmm. one of the, the, the still most dominant and brilliant accounts on Roman emperorship is, is Fergus Miller's emperor, uh, who in the 1970s and then a revision in the 1990s wrote the book on the Roman emperor, which I used systematically in writing this because it's, it remains seminal and brilliant. But his his key notion is the emperor is a passive figure. The emperor is what the emperor does. And mm -hmm. the emperor reacts exactly to sort of petitions you're talking about. And I think the problem in looking at it that way is that you create a reasonably elite emperor. So 
the emperor may have been reacting to the request by the elite, but he was still doing quite a lot of things himself and initiating that. And those things that he's initiating that weren't requested by elite audiences might also be, or probably are also, the sort of things that people expected him to do, or certainly the things that he expected that the people expected of him. And that's a rather circuitous way of coming to it. But I think that's we, we tend to miss the group under the elite when we talk about the Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire in general. And by getting to written petitions again, you, you have the risk of falling into that trap. So I think that the, the there is that notion of what does the emperor do when he decides that he's going to attack, when he's decide that he's going to link himself to a specific god. That, that, that's not necessarily a, resac- a result of a request. That's an active action. Oh, absolutely. And you're entirely right. I, I didn't mean to, uh, when I mentioned petitions, I was supplementing um, the categories that you were mentioning. Okay, and yeah, and actually enough. coming, from, I'm, I'm coming from it from a very different perspective, but but you're right. It kind of did drift me into uh, Fergus Miller's model this way. And, and that that is that at least in like Diocletian and after the period I focused on mostly, um, I think it's important to stress how um, responsive the government wanted to be seen as okay yeah. R- right in the sense that tell us no, your yeah, problem please right. yeah. like our yeah. job is to solve your problems and <laughs> yeah so half, half agree you're absolutely right that they want to be seen as responsive but if you look at the answers quite often it's no go back to the governor. So it's this notion, so it's weird, you're right, there's this notion that that there needs to be a system in place where you can be approached, and it's extremely important that you show throughout that you can be approached, this administrative role continues, even if the practical, practical upshot is that you're basically thrown over the fence again back to where you started. So that, that... Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that the emperors are constantly intervening, but they're creating a kind of personality for the government that they're heading, which is that we're here to listen to you and do whatever. And I think that even, well, anyway, we're we're getting into other territory, but it it it's it's one of the reasons why I think this empire was so um, successful in the long run, and my long run is like another nine hundred years, yeah. um, because it it performed this function and performed in both senses of the word. Yeah. Um, but you're entirely right. I mean, I read um, Miller's book in, in the 90s, and I was struck that there was no mention in it of many military functions. And I'm like, well, the, the emperor doesn't lead armies by petition. Um, and no discussion of like religious policies. It's like, Aurelian didn't decide to turn to Sol Invictus because he got a petition. Like there are things that emperors actively do, and they're very, very important things. Um, and I was actually waiting for, well, it turns out decades for someone to say, well, no, let's fill this out a little bit more. I mean, the the passive model he sketched, he no, thoroughly researched and it's brilliant, but we just need more to the picture. Um so another thing that your book does is talk about how these expectations changed over time, and in particular, how emperors set new bars for their successors, both low bars and high bars, right? Um, so can you just give us some examples of like how tra- previously transgressive behavior was normalized or how like super successful emperors made the job of their successors a little bit harder? Yeah, I think I, I think the, uh, the the first category is more fun, isn't it? Um, also, fairly relevant for our times, right? This is very this much is so. Um, so changing bars and creating new possibilities you can do by just breaking all boundaries and failing miserably. So, um, if one looks at the the, the infamous bad emperors, right? If you do a crossword, bad emperor, four letters, it's Nero. Uh, if we have a nice sexual element, we get Caligula, Heligabalus. Um, one, if one has a sort of military paranoid one, you get Domitian and Caracalla. And we can we, we can get that name. We, we, we all mm-hmm. will tick the same sort of names and you can get the empresses as well. And this Now, these are all 
individuals who, in a very, very basic way, these are people who didn't abide by senatorial standards. They did something very differently. They didn't live with senatorial rule. They showed themselves as either religiously dominant or way too much full power or dependent. doesn't really matter. But if you take the case of Nero, who took much individual power, showed himself supreme, linked himself to Saul, he got dead, right? This is what you do. You, you do that, you overstep the boundaries, you get killed. Now, anyone after Nero who would present himself as linked to Saul rather than really assimilating Saul, and who would take lots of supreme power but still listen to the Senate would instantly look like a much better ruler and much more sensible. Right. So Vespasian can do much more than Tiberius could do because you have Nero in between. And that that builds up. So, so in that sense, um, transgression means that even when you feel at an individual level as an emperor and you feel either because you become deeply impopular afterwards or you get assassinated and often both the possibilities for the ruler after you to do some of that behavior without transgressing are obviously created yeah. um, it works slightly more problematic the other way around the one you started with so really good emperors um some emperors become canonically good augustus is the obvious one Right. Uh, I think actually only Augustus is and not even all Augustus is always seen to be good by everyone. But Augustus, after his death, is quite rapidly a universal model. Um, what you can do is try to defend something because Augustus did it, too, even if he didn't. Right. That That's one way you can start changing the boundaries. This is like what Augustus did. Yeah. Um when Hadrian gives back territory, so Hadrian comes to power after Trajan, as I think most of the listeners here will, will know, and then he inherits a problematic military situation in which Trajan had effectively tried to conquer the world and conquered large stretches that couldn't really be maintained in any sensible way. So Hadrian gives it back and Roman emperors don't give back territory because that's not what you do. And he has to get back to the Republic to Cato. As an example, he can't even use Augustus. As an that shows you you're in trouble. Right. There is no emperor you can use as an example. So I think your your positive rulers, they, they don't as much create difficulties for successors to live up to, but they give possibilities for later emperors to, as it were, use them as a tradition or a reason why this is a good action. Right. Yeah. And you can see the Julio-Claudians trying to look as much like Augustus, even physically. Oh, yeah. In their portraiture, like... When and Trajan looks like Augustus again and Constantine looks like Trajan and Augustine again. Yeah, so you yeah, see yeah. these these physiological currents returning again and again and again. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But the, the transgression is, as you said, more interesting and in part because it reveals like a soft cultural consensus. Well, they don't know it's soft until someone crosses the lines. Everyone thought, but this is how we do things until someone doesn't. And then, and we're exactly in this situation today in many, many countries where you're realizing, wait, there were no rules <laughs> here. This was just like an agreement among gentlemen to like not do that thing. And now we, it turns out we can do that thing. And that throws the Romans into these convulsions. Um, well, and then, and then, then the, the, the... The interesting thing from a historical perspective, and again, something I think we need to reflect on now, is that we say that Nero, because he's he's the, the easy example, right, is a bad emperor because his experiment failed, right? I I can quite easily see an, an alternate history in which Nero is successful, in that Nero fails because he alienates just too many senators and Vindex gets annoyed and he has to assassinate himself, right? He, or he gets suicided or whatever term you want to know. But, uh, hmm. but we all know, and there's this, this wonderful book already decades old by Ted Champlin looking at the reputation of Nero and Nero, but Nero retains this immense popularity. We know from ancient sources that we get Nero messiahs, that later people come from the East pretending to be Nero and they're instantly popular. So there's a, a lot swatch of people who would fervently vote for Nero 
uh, throughout, as in the, the hardline neuro supporters, um, they could have been successful. Um, the fact that he wasn't successful and senators write history me shows that we, we talk about transgression and there was common sense and it was transgressed and he was bad. A situation in which it shifted slightly and Nero would become a positive example and mm. change behavior in that way isn't impossible. So, so if we look at what's happening today, um, it is relevant, and I think we are all aware of that. It depends very much on whom you're talking to about who is the good guy and who is the bad guy in this situation. And um, I yeah. don't live in the States, but I think it it's salient at the moment for you. Yes, very much so. Speaking of alternative histories, um, I don't know if you know Tom Holt's comic novel, A Song for Nero. Um, and so this is a, it, it's hilarious. And the premise is that Nero doesn't actually die in 68, but one of his doubles does. And, and Nero goes off with some uh, Greek friend and he's like a cook or something on a ship or whatever. And they have adventures is, in the room. Yeah, but this this is in ancient text, right? This whole notion that he didn't die yes. is, is, is there. It's, uh, yeah, no, it's wonderful. Yeah. So we have this distinction between good and bad emperors, which, as you mentioned, is largely a senatorial construct. If you if you were polite to the Senate and pretended that they had, you know, power and authority, then you were you went down as a good emperor. Um, and I remember for a while in like the 80s, mostly the 90s, we got a whole bunch of like revisionist biographies where all of the bad emperors were like well maybe he wasn't so bad and who cares what those senatorial types are writing anyway um where are we now with with all that like i mean obviously That's... historians have gotten past that dichotomy um do we worry but... about it at all anymore so 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 guilty as charged in that i started my career by showing that Commodus wasn't as insane as everyone else said um I think what these books do on the whole, and I, I still think that what they do is sensible, but declaring an interest, um, is showing the senatorial bias and showing that there are different groups thinking differently about emperorship. And I, there is still, I mean, it's so difficult to get away from this dichotomy because it's so dominant in the ancient literature that modern literature keeps repeating it. And as ancient historians and Byzantinists, I think we're not doing a particularly good job at showing that this dichotomy is wrong, considering the fact that everyone else writing about ancient history still maintains it. Right. So, yeah. so, 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 so I think there's consensus in the field that this isn't the right dichotomy, and there's consensus outside of the field that it is how the world works. Um, personally, uh, I think that anyone ruling the known world entirely on his own, as in no one could really correct him without killing him, has to have been at least slightly insane. So I don't I don't think that any of these rulers yes. will have been able to have had a sense of perspective, because if they've had yes. a sense of perspective, they they wouldn't be able to cope. So yes. so we yeah. It's it's yeah. like like the CEOs of very very large companies. They tend not to be the most empathic uh, yeah. individuals. I may or, now yeah. offend lots of people, but I think the, the, the general pattern holds when you have that sort of authority, and these didn't even have systems in place to kick them out, as most CEOs do have. It, yeah, they weren't going to be mentally sound or sane. No, I mean our economic system basically rewards being a psychopath on certain levels. <clears throat> Um, anyway, and I'm pretty well, sure the Roman and, and I think the Roman Empire did too. <laughs> okay. And by the way, I'm also guilty of the good bad distinction. In fact, I just uh, did a, a series of podcast interviews with Robin Pearson where I talked about the ten best yeah. Byzantine emperors and the yeah. ten worst yeah. ones. Yes. Um, it, it's it's such a it's a popular format for packaging information. Um, I just at least I tried to use like my own criteria. No, I did use my own criteria. I wasn't beholden <laughs> to the sources. So some odd figures appeared on the lists. But anyway, um, okay, I want to jump ahead a little bit to the to the later part of your period. Um, so what did Christianity change in the nature and function of the imperial position? Um, and I say this in particular, because in in some scholarship, 
the emergence of Christian emperorship is taken as a kind of rupture point beyond which the ancient historian need not or dare not tread. And from your periodization, it emerges that you obviously don't think this is some kind of major, you know, or, you know, culture changing development. Um, so where would you situate Christian Roman emperorship on a kind of spectrum of uh, a continuity or, or, you know, rupture? Um, very much on the continuity scale. So I'm trying to see to see just how blunt I dare be and whether I'd say that nothing changes at all. But I, I, it's not quite true, but it's it's nearer to nothing changes in the nature of emperorship. Not saying nothing changes in society, nothing changes in court. There are lots sure. of things that change through Christianity, but I very little changes with the Christian emperor and everything that changes... You see, they are trying to find ways of being as continuous as you can. So major difference clearly is this notion of the emperor as a divine figure. That becomes more problematic in Christianity than it was before. But even there, it's not so problematic in early Christianity. And even there, he does become so much more supreme and so much ahead of the bishops and clearly saint like we, we we even there there is continuity i think that's that's there's most rupture at the point of personal divinity but even there there's continuity and if you read at comments made by authors at the time they protest how people still worship the statue of the emperor they still create temples mm. for the emperor so so even though formally when we talk about how the bishops talk about it or how the elite talks about it it changes people in the world and the subject would still see the emperor exactly like he was and we have christians in uh, fifth century africa who are still flamen of the imperial cult and portray themselves both as a priest of the imperial cult and a christian so 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 even there i think there's massive continuity yeah, I like that your book does this, where you trace the the sort of history of the expectations, or military, religious, administrative, across that divide. And you know, there are changes before and there are changes after. It's 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 not like nothing changes, but it's not like Christianity introduces some new model. Um, in fact, I was just reading. Uh, uh, in, in, I'm not even finished. Blaken's biography of Augustus. This is a book from okay, twenty some years read. ago. Oh, the Blyken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, Blyken. And um, Sorry. and he gets to the point where he's talking about the the origin of the kind of imperial cult. And Augustus is just trying to maintain this balance between, yeah, I want the honor that comes from being associated with worship of the gods, but don't put me in like, I'm not a god. Don't put me in that. And I was like, yeah, this is Constantine. It's the same. He's just kind of treading that same kind of um, narrow path between those. Well, and, and and this this is already Cicero talking about what you need to do with all the other people in the Republic. How do we define Sola? How do we define marriage? This goes back. This goes back to Flamininus, if you want to. This tension is is there throughout. So it's not a result of Christianity. Christianity gives a different a theological basis on it because obviously there's a difference when you have one God or you have an infinite number of it. But that's that's a technical problem, which I think would have been not particularly relevant for the vast majority of the people living in the empire. Yes. So let me ask you about the, your periodization, because you go down to 565 and presumably I mean, you could have gone without finding any major changes down to 602 or even later. Um, so that's very different from Fergus Miller, who ends with Constantine. Right. So. I mean, maybe he ended there because his book was already like 700 pages. I don't know. But what did, what do you see differently that you decided to take that time frame rather than his sort of early Roman Empire um, time frame? Um, so I, I, I think if anything, my book stops too early. And that's hmm. basically because I can't really deal with the later period at the level that I want to deal with it. Sure. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to push it further. I think to bring the early caliphate in makes a lot of sense, again, in terms of continuity. I think quite a lot that's happening there will show you similar patterns and similar expectations. So 
So you're right. The book is a reaction to not not just Fergus, but quite a lot of courses stopping in 338 with Constantine. I think that's I think that's wrong. I think it's it creates a dichotomy which is ours. So I think that the, the problem with stopping early or starting late, because it's not just people stopping at 338 or 323 or 312 or whatever date you want to choose. It's also quite a lot of people working on late antiquity, as we call it, or the Byzantine history, who start there. Mm-hmm. And yes. I think the problem is that it 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 creates artificial periods. People didn't wake up overnight and thought that the world had changed because it hadn't really. They used the same terminology. They still call themselves Romans. They, they in this stage, even call themselves Roman in Latin. They still call the emperor the Augustus. So I think, I think mm. any any periodization is completely arbitrary. Full yes. stop. Um, yes, and, and the- I, I, I can make a case that certainly pushing it to the, to the sixth, seventh century, there was a sense in the world that the world was one, and the person ruling it was the same type of figure. So that would be a reason to continue. And I think by stopping earlier or starting late, you miss these continuity, and you get this creation of artificial differences, just what you were talking about. It changes with Christianity. Well, if you start with Constantine and show how new everything is, obviously it's going to be massively different, but actually it isn't. Yes. So, so yeah, I feel, I feel quite strongly about this need for continuity. And I think, again, we're doing ourselves a disservice as a subject by breaking it up as much as we do. I agree. Though sometimes it's an it's unavoidable. Um, so it, I've just wrote a, a new history of Byzantium, and I start with Constantine. But I tried in the very first pages to root Constantine as much in his early imperial models, just to show that what's new here is like Constantinople, not anything in the. In the I, I don't blame you because because yeah. we need to begin somewhere and end somewhere, and we can't yeah. do it all. Yeah. But but and this is. Actually, I would much rather have Byzantinists start half a century at least earlier than Constantine, uh, because Constantine has become such a a seminal and self-evident starting point. And because it's so self-evident and seminal, it becomes problematic because we assume it's right and it's true. Yeah. So, so you could you could have started with Diocletian because you can do that too. You know the material. It wouldn't really have changed the first pages. It wouldn't really have changed the argument. So in that sense, it doesn't make a difference. But I think it would send the signal that it isn't Constantine as sort of this brilliant figure embracing Christianity and founding a new empire. Yes. Um, the, the way I handle that, and obviously all choices have upsides and downsides, is in talking about the main institutions of governance, and that included the gold coinage and the armies and the administration and and so forth, is to have retrospectives looking back to Diocletian and even earlier in each theme. But I really wanted to start also for literary dramatic purposes with the foundation (laughs) of Constantinople. I, I mean, I start. I start with Caesar, which is as arbitrary as starting with uh, with Constantine. I purposely don't start with Augustus, but I start with Caesar. But but you should start with Sulla or with Tiberius yeah. Christ. So so we can push it throughout any periodization is random. Yeah. Speaking of which, one of the other things that impressed me in Fergus Miller's book is I think it was in the very first pages when he talks about Pompey, Pompey in the East, and. I remember, and he's treating Pompey as a kind of proto-emperor, and and I I've, I've remembered that ever since, and I and I kind of hold to it that insofar as he was governing the East, Pompey was pretty much functioning as Roman emperors would. And you know what's striking in the 11th century? Um, there's this uh, fellow called Xifilinos, and he wrote one of the an uh, an epitome of Cassius Dio, and Dio. it's one of our yeah. main sources yeah. for Cassius Dio, and he begins with Pompey. In the East, because that's when the Eastern Roman Empire, the, what he's talking about in the 11th century, that's when it was kind of first created there by Pompey. And I thought, wow, he got it. Yeah. No, it's. It, it, and it's fine. We all need to start somewhere. We all need to end yeah. somewhere. And time is is, 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 is not infinite. And uh, our knowledge isn't and our sources are. 
But I think we do need to be more explicit about why we make the choices that we make and at least realise that when we create a cutoff point, that isn't a historically relevant cutoff point because we choose it. It's a, it, it's something that we can defend and we have criteria to say why we do it. Yes. But history always runs across that boundary, doesn't it? Most often it's because that's where the sources you're comfortable with using stop. And yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Um, good. Um, I think we have a full discussion here. Um, and, and so we should bring this to a close. I just wanted to ask you, what's next for you? Ah, uh, I I don't really know. I'm, so I'm done with emperors. I've, this this is what I have to say about emperors. I don't know. So I'm at the moment exploring late Roman Republic also because it's extremely interested in comparing it to what's happening to our time frame now. Mm. I think there are certainly sort of looking at it with a presentistic sort of view is is interesting. Um, looking at the Roman Empire, which still interests me, even if the emperors don't, as a sort of global network is another thing. So I'm I'm sort of playing with so how can we look at the empire as something that brings all these different groups together and what happens when you get that sense of skill to enlarge so I'll, I'll continue playing along with romans but not necessarily the emperors anymore i look forward to that work and one of the things that i'm hoping to get is my field to pay more attention to earlier roman studies no i think it's certainly certainly and there's extremely exciting work happening on the Roman Republic at the moment, lots of young scholars doing yes. really, really brilliant work right. there. So I, I look forward to reading all of that, which is nice. Yeah, because Byzantine studies is generally good about dipping into the Hellenic and Hellenistic background yeah. or early Christianity, but not so much about the Roman Republic or the early Roman Empire. And I think we need to do more of that. So um, I'll be watching your work and and, and that of everyone else. Anyway, Oliver, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Likewise. So, yeah, absolutely. It was uh, very much fun talking and uh, see you next time.